96.9 FM. Streaming online everywhere at xray.fm. X-Ray. From the Center for Investigative Reporting in PRX, this is Reveal. I'm Al Letty. A white van heading south on London Bridge suddenly swerves off the road and accelerates, running down pedestrians. When attacks like the one in London happen, people are quick to label it. We know that authorities are saying that the attack seems to be linked to Islamic terrorism. But when the attacker is a white supremacist... In Portland, Oregon, the suspect in a deadly train attack made his first appearance in court ranting. Free speech or die, Portland. you got no safe place. This is America. Get out if you don't like free speech. It's not always called terrorism. And that affects who the government targets and how they're punished and who we miss. If they come to arrest me, I'm just going to start shooting people. On this episode of Reveal, overlooking a terrorist threat. But first, this news. From the Center for Investigative Reporting and PRX, this is Reveal. I'm Al Letton. Remember this theme from Donald Trump's campaign? Radical. Islamic terrorism. As president, it's also his justification for banning people from six majority Muslim countries. According to data provided by the Department of Justice, the vast majority of individuals convicted of terrorism and terrorism-related offenses since 9-11 came here from outside of our country. There's one problem with that statement. It's just jaw-droppingly, astonishingly wrong. That's David Nyward, a reporter at the nonprofit news organization, The Investigative Fund. The vast, vast majority of terrorism cases committed in the United States uh, are committed by American citizens. Like Omar Mateen shooting up an Orlando nightclub in the name of ISIS. Dylan Roof killing black churchgoers in South Carolina to start a race war. Jeremy Christian stabbing Good Samaritans on a Portland light rail train last month. But also many, many more that have just gone totally ignored. Since 9-11, virtually every terrorist attack in the United States has been cooked up in the United States. Since 2008, David and his team at the Investigative Fund have been keeping track of these domestic terror incidents. There were 63 cases where terrorists claimed they acted in the name of Islam. In the same period, we have nearly 120 cases of right-wing extremist terrorism. We should note, though, right-wing terrorism has killed slightly fewer people overall. And here's how many acts of terrorism were committed by people born in the countries President Trump wants to ban. Um, three. That's three out of 201. The Trump administration points to one of those three to make a case for the travel ban. It involved a Somali refugee who came here when he was three years old. Reveal's Stan Alcorn has been looking into that incident from 2010, and he joins me now. Hey, Stan. Hi, Al. So lay it out for me. What happened? Well, in downtown Portland, Oregon, a few stops from last month's train stabbing, there's this plaza in front of the courthouse. And every year, the day after Thanksgiving, it hosts this holiday celebration. That was me. <laughs> That's Sam Adams, Portland's mayor back in 2010. He was on stage as the MC. <laughs> and there's music, and the crowd is, you know, shoulder to shoulder, and it's a party atmosphere. We are ready to light the Christmas 
Santa Claus comes out and they start counting down to the moment when they're gonna flip this oversized switch and turn on all the lights on this 75 foot Christmas tree. And then? And then the tree lights up and everybody starts singing White Christmas. But after that, Sam Adams gets into his car and he gets a text from his police chief. That said, call me right away, urgent. And I called him and he said, I need you to come in for a briefing right away. He drives straight to police headquarters, where officials brief him on what's about to be national news. Now to a terror plot stopped at its tracks. FBI agents say a Somali-born U.S. citizen was arrested Friday night after attempting to blow up a bomb in Portland, Oregon, during the city's Christmas tree lighting ceremony. Investigators fear that this had been months, even perhaps years in the making. That team telling police that he chose Portland as his intended target because, quote, it's Oregon and no one really thinks about it. It sounds like a really close call. Yeah, at first it really did. But then more of the facts came out. Here's Sam Adams again. There was a lot of sort of clouds around this particular case. Yeah. Well, and I guess I wonder, as a person who was responsible for the city of Portland, do you think that this case made the people of Portland safer? I'm not entirely certain. Why would he say that? I mean, the FBI stopped a terrorist plot before it happened, so... I mean, it sounds like the definition of making people safer. Yeah, if they're really stopping a terrorist plot. But what if the FBI was creating the plot and the terrorist? Creating them how? Well, so if you go back to a year before the Christmas tree lighting, the teenager they arrested was a freshman at Oregon State University. His name's Mohammed Osman Mohamud. I talked to one of his friends there. My name is Elissa Reidinger, and I was roommates with Mohammed uh, in college for about a year and a half. Alyssa says freshman year, that room was supposed to be for three people, but this overlapping group of best friends and boyfriends and girlfriends meant there were often six. Yeah, so we had um, two Indians, um, an Asian, I want to say he was um, Korean, and someone from El Salvador who was Catholic, myself, a white Christian, and then Mohammed. Mohammed was a tall, skinny kid who Alyssa says was the life of the party at frat parties, football games. We just had a blast together and um, even go to each other's classes sometimes. We were that close. Like just for you just sit through a math class just to... Absolutely, yep. (laughs) I think it was mostly English because those were a little bit easier, but yeah, we would. (laughs) And all of this, the FBI was seeing too. Agents were videotaping him in the cafeteria. They were reading his emails and his text messages. Wait, why were they doing all that? I mean, he just sounds like a typical college kid. Essentially, it's because of what he did on the internet in high school. What happened was, when he was 15, Muhammad went through what his dad called an identity crisis. His parents were splitting up, and he started going to a more conservative mosque and got into what you might call the jihadi internet. That's where he met the guy who started this magazine called Jihad Recollections. Um, I actually have a copy of it. And if you flip to, I want to say it's like page 22, I think you'll find his, uh, his article. Uh, do you want to like read the title of it? Yeah, yeah. Getting in shape without weights. And it has a picture of uh, 
three guys. Looks like they're practicing karate or something. Building your legs is the most important part of your body to prepare for jihad. It almost seems like something you'd read in The Onion. I, I mean, really, it does. Like, it's a uh, workout for terrorists. I've been thinking of it as uh, Pilates for jihadis. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like, it is Pilates for jihadis. I should say, though, Muhammad wrote more serious articles, too. For instance, he wrote about why Europe is a more deserving target for attacks than the United States. Now, by the time he got to college, he'd stopped writing for Jihad Recollections. But the government said these articles were one of the main reasons he was targeted. They were worried it was more than just words, that he was waiting to take action. And this is really the question at the heart of this case. How do you distinguish someone who's all talk from someone who's waiting to act? So one clue, use some law enforcement terminology there, was understanding that it's very easy to get weapons in this country. That's Mike German. He's a former FBI agent who investigated and infiltrated domestic terrorist groups. And he says there are hundreds of thousands of people who are talking about doing horrible things. If you want to find them, you can just visit an internet message board. But if you want to stop a bomb plot, he says you need to look for people who are trying to build bombs. It's very easy to obtain firearms. It's very easy to manufacture small explosives. These aren't activities that involve a lot of training or a lot of resources. So this person can't be very dangerous if they've never actually attempted to obtain weapons on their own or engage in a plot on their own. In Muhammad's case, not only did the FBI find no evidence of him trying to buy weapons or engage in a terrorist plot, in emails and trial testimony, agents said Muhammad seemed to have left behind his radical thinking. They saw him as a manipulable, conflicted kid. But they still decided to test him, first with emails from a fictional Muslim guy in Idaho asking how to help rid the occupiers from Palestine. And then, when Muhammad didn't take that bait, the FBI did something more drastic. They intervened in his real life. When did you notice something change in him? Um, it was probably um, towards the end of our freshman year. That's Alyssa again. Her boyfriend, the Catholic Salvadoran roommate, was Muhammad's best friend. And he'd arranged for Muhammad to come with him to Alaska for the summer to work in a cannery or on a fishing boat. He was poor, so he was really excited to be able to not struggle so much. Um, but then he got to the airport, he was all packed, and to my understanding, he just couldn't go. Muhammad had been placed on the no-fly list. So instead of making money in Alaska with his best friend, he was left behind in Portland, where the FBI would contact him again. Assalamu alaikum, uh, Brother Muhammad. Uh, this is Yusuf. Yusuf is an FBI agent posing as an al-Qaeda recruiter. I'd like to uh, meet up with you for, for, I don't know, for a quick conversation. That first conversation was not recorded. FBI agents claimed they ran out of batteries. But the FBI says Yusuf asked Muhammad what he wanted to do. And when he didn't answer, gave him some choices. He could pray, study, send money overseas, martyr himself, or become operational. Muhammad chose operational. And when Yusuf asked what that meant, Muhammad said he was interested in a car bombing. So all of this is alleged by the FBI because we have no tape to corroborate what they're saying. That's right. They didn't record it. 
And not only that, the agent who wrote the report about it destroyed his notes. But we do have grainy video recordings of the next meeting. Yusuf and Muhammad are sitting on the floor of a hotel room, opening bags of takeout food. The camera seems to be on a desk on the other side of the room, so the audio's not great. I want you to be nervous. I want you to eat, enjoy yourself. Do you have to be home at a certain time? Sure. The setup of this meeting is that Yusuf and Muhammad need to convince the third guy in the room, who's also an undercover agent, to give them explosives. Tell him, um, if you don't mind, if it's okay, tell him um, about your dream. Oh, well, when I was 15. Muhammad describes a dream he had where he was leading 11,000 fighters to conquer Jerusalem. I had a lot of dreams when I was 15. At that time, I had a lot of trouble, you know. Everybody was, you know, like, making fun of me. And my parents were saying, this guy is crazy, extremist. But I just have a lot of dreams. Fifteen minutes in, the conversation turns from dreams like, say, uh, to reality. So what, what do you want? You can help me, huh? Muhammad asks for a truck with explosives. After that, the FBI takes over. They give Muhammad homework. He has to rent a storage shed, buy some AA batteries and a toggle switch at Radio Shack. But it's FBI agents who get the van and who build a fake bomb in it out of plywood and plastic barrels. It's the agents who drive and park that van near the Christmas tree lighting with Muhammad in the passenger seat. Ready? They even tell Muhammad the phone number to dial, dial one that's supposed to detonate the bomb. Dial it again. Just before he's arrested. But in the meetings leading up to that day, over and over the undercover agents give Muhammad what they called outs. The government said these were opportunities for Muhammad to back out that show him choosing violence instead. Muhammad's attorneys said these were phony choices that show him trying to live up to expectations and his adolescent dreams. One of the most dramatic outs happens in that first meeting. So I'm just in it. After Muhammad casually suggests he could blow himself up in the van. You're talking like this, like you're eating an ice cream. Muhammad is still sitting on the floor. It's not easy, And he keeps looking down at his food while he talks, while Yusuf towers over him, gesturing with his hands. You're going to push that button, are you sure? Yeah, brother. Well, Muhammad, I need you to look me in the eyes. Yeah. How long have you been thinking about this? I told you. Muhammad, yeah. look me in the eyes. Since I was 15, you know, I, since I was 15, I thought about all those things before. This video played a critical role at Muhammad's trial. I talked with juror Alicia Thompson, and she was on the fence until she rewatched it. Yeah, that's what made me finally decide to say he was guilty. And what was it about that clip that helped you make that decision? Because he said he was been thinking about it since he was 15. He's been thinking about it, and he acted on it. And what do you think that it is? Uh, To kill Americans. After a 13-day trial, they found him guilty of attempted use of a weapon of mass destruction in less than seven hours. The question I still have is, I don't know, I mean, did all of this make people safer? 
that depends on what you think Muhammad would have done without the FBI leading him along. But it also depends on what you think those FBI agents could have done. That's something former agent Mike German pointed out to me. That's the flip side of this, that these undercover operations are very high-resource investigations. So this means you're not doing something else. And there's plenty of crime out there. Uh, The government shouldn't be in a position of inventing it. And how often does that happen? Like, how often do we put resources into taking somebody who is susceptible but not actually doing anything and put them away? Well, a lot more often if you're Muslim. In our domestic terrorism database, nearly half of those cases involve stings, compared to 12% of right-wing cases. Also, prosecutors charged Muhammad with attempted use of a weapon of mass destruction. That's a terrorism charge. And they added to that a terrorism sentencing enhancement. Terrorism charges bring with them substantially higher penalties, longer sentences, and, yeah, harsher terms. That's reporter David Nyward again. And for good reason, you know, they cause greater harm than your ordinary underlying crimes. Muhammad got 30 years in prison, followed by a lifetime of supervised release. When he gets out of prison, he'll have to ask a probation officer before he uses a computer. Those kinds of charges and sentences and and prosecutions are very common among Islamists. Whereas with a lot of right-wing extremists, uh, there's a lot of, I think there's a lot of, you know, wrist slapping that goes on. In fact, prison terms for right-wing terrorists are less than half as long as sentences for terrorists who say they're acting in the name of Islam. Case in point, something that happened the night after Muhammad's arrest. And breaking news that we've been following this morning. Fire crews responded to an arson fire at a mosque in Corvallis around 2.15 this morning. It happened at the Salman Al-Fariz... In what seemed to be retaliation for the Christmas tree bomb plot, someone had broken a window and started a fire in the Corvallis mosque where Muhammad sometimes prayed. Okay, so what happened with the Christmas tree bomb plot was just that. It was a plot that never actually turned into a terrorist attack. But what happened here at this mosque, that's a terrorist attack, right? Absolutely. It's ideological violence to intimidate a group. By the FBI's definition, that's terrorism. But it wasn't treated like terrorism. How was it treated? That part of the story when we come back. This is Reveal from the Center for Investigative Reporting and PRX. Support for X-Ray FM comes from our listeners, as well as Brass Tack Sandwiches, providing house-made ingredients and responsibly sourced sandwiches to meat lovers and vegans alike. Brass Tacks is located on North Vancouver and Fremont. More information online at BrassTackSandwiches.com.
From the Center for Investigative Reporting and PRX, this is Reveal. I'm Al Letson. Before the break, we heard about back-to-back terrorist incidents in Oregon. In an FBI sting operation, a 19-year-old Somali-American named Mohammed Osman Mohamud got 30 years in prison for trying to set off a fake bomb. The night after the bomb plot, there was an arson at Mohammed's mosque. Reveal's Stan Alcorn has been looking into the arsonist story. Hey, Stan. Hi, Al. So, who did it? What happened to him? Well, he was a white Christian 24-year-old named Cody Seth Crawford. It took six years, but he finally pleaded no contest last year. David Nywert of the Investigative Fund was in the courtroom for the sentencing. And it was really strikingly different from what you would see in a typical terrorism case. He says even though Cody insisted he was innocent and didn't show any remorse, the judge was smiling at him as she imposed her verdict. Five years probation, no prison time. So Muhammad gets prison time for a fake bomb, but Cody got no prison time for real fire. How does that happen? It fits with a larger pattern we know from that domestic terrorism database we put together with the investigative fund. Prison terms for terrorists who target Muslims tend to be about half as long as for terrorists targeting the general public. In this arson case, I called the prosecutor, and he told me Cody got off so lightly because at the time of his sentencing, he was in Oregon State Hospital, the mental hospital where One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest was filmed. What happened was, after the arson, Cody had a series of episodes involving alcohol and what a psychiatrist diagnosed as brief reactive psychosis. One found him at a gas station, ranting at the customers that he was a Christian warrior and telling a police officer, you are going to burn in hell like the other Muslims. The one that landed him in the mental hospital started at his mom's house. Here's my mother's piano. He videotaped himself holding up a giant wrench in front of a little upright piano. Right here. And then smashing it down. In a video he shot later that night, he delivers a monologue in his mom's backyard with shards of the piano burning in a bonfire behind him. I did burn my mom's piano, but... I did not burn that stupid Islamic center. You know what? Those Islamic center they can go burn in hell for all I care. Because I didn't do to them. While the piano burned, his mom called the police. Officer Casey Gibson was the first on the scene. He got to the door and was able to just lock the door as I was grabbing the door handle. And he yelled from inside the house that he had a gun. He was going to shoot me. So Casey pulls out his gun, and at this point, Officer Todd Fink shows up. And I see Cody leaning out the window, and he's got a flashlight uh, in one hand, and he brings his other hand up in what looked to me like a, like a shooting position. So uh, I drop to my knees behind the engine block of my police car, and at that point, I realize he didn't have a, a gun in his hand. He's got a, a slingshot. Both officers said Cody came very close to being shot that night. Cody was ultimately charged with unlawful use of a weapon, a felony, and found guilty except for insanity, which is how he landed in the mental hospital. He'd been there nearly two years when he was finally sentenced for the mosque arson. Okay, so I'm... Driving over to the Corvallis Mosque, where I'm going to meet with 
Mozafar Wanley. I wanted to talk to Mozafar because the prosecution memo about the lenient sentence named one other factor in addition to Cody's mental illness. It said they picked the verdict with great deference to the leaders of the mosque. Mozafar is one of those leaders, so I wonder what role he had in that sentencing. Mozafar comes out of the mosque wearing a khaki vest with too many pockets. He's got a trim white beard and little round glasses. He looks like a grandfather. The night of the fire, he showed up at 3 a.m. while it was still burning. Yeah, I, I saw that it's a black and fire inside, and the window, this window, it was broke here. Mozafar said the prosecution kept the mosque leaders informed, but as far as consulting them about the sentence, telling them... We're not going to seek to put him in prison? No, no, no. They didn't. They didn't. No, oh, okay. No. But because I have, one be, of the things... Because mm-hmm. I said from that time, I said, do whatever you want, you feel that's right. We'll accept it. We are with you. But I will say the people, they will, they will feel that's not fair between what's happened with Muhammad Mahmoud and what's happened with him. Then I told Mozafar something he didn't know. A few months after Cody was sentenced for the mosque arson, a medical panel at the mental hospital decided he didn't have bipolar disorder after all. They diagnosed him with personality disorder and substance abuse disorder. And the way they interpret the law, they couldn't hold him for that. So they released him, even though they concluded there was evidence he was substantially dangerous. And the fact that they said that he is dangerous and yet we're letting I, I him don't out. think they did a good job if he's in dangerous and let him free. I don't think that's right. I drove straight from talking to Mozafar at the mosque to meeting Cody outside of Walmart. (laughs) He's wiry with a graying red beard and a tie-dye sweatshirt. And from the moment I meet him, he's talking nonstop about videos he's made, visiting his mom in the hospital. He tells me all about the homemade bike he rode here on. Battery pack, 36 volt. Oh, so this thing's electric? Yeah, yeah, I don't want to have to pedal. All the components are Chinese. It takes more than a day before I can sit him down in a quiet place and ask him about the things I want to talk about. The mosque arson, which he still denies starting despite DNA evidence, and what he said about Muslims during his psychotic episodes. They quote you saying, watch out for your red eyes. That's how you know if you're standing in front of... So like I said, one flew over cuckoo's nest. Are you saying, though... I'm saying I acted crazy. I wanted a middle ground where I got convicted, where I didn't have to do a lot of years in prison, I didn't have to pay any money, where I didn't have to say I did it. I consider what happened in my case a total victory for me. I mean, and it does seem like you've, you're I kicked, out. You I kicked the federal government's ass in court. Either way you look at it with what I started with, whether I did it or not. But later, I press him on the details. The police say they talked to your sister, and she had said that um, your sister, your mother... So what do you want me to say? Like, just admit that I actually am a nutcase and, like, go back on Social Security and be a leech on society? Or do I pick myself up by the bootstraps, tell everybody I lied through my teeth, look cool, like Jack Nicholson, maybe. People think I'm guilty anyway. It's much more employable to be thought of as a crook and a liar than as a bipolar, crazy guy. What was your take on him? My take is that it's really hard to tell what Cody actually believes. 
versus what he wants you to think he believes. You know, because one minute I'd be talking to him and he'd say, Muslims are amazing people. I have friends that are Muslims. And then the next minute he'd say something like this. There's no other religion that just calls for your death under so many different circumstances you if say, you aren't on their side. Since he was released from the mental hospital, he hasn't done anything like the mosque arson. But he did drunkenly drive over a mailbox and a fence and then flee the police. And he just pleaded guilty to a new crime of driving with a suspended license after wrecking his mom's car. He could have been put in jail for violating the terms of his probation for the mosque arson. But so far, that hasn't happened. He's getting a lot of second chances. Meanwhile, for the Christmas tree plot, Mohammed Mohamud is in a medium-security federal prison. Yeah, and Cody is very conscious of how their two cases are intertwined. At first, he said he didn't think Mohammed should ever get out of prison. But then he also said this. There was never mental health stuff mixed in the Muhammad case. I, I know that there, there, there has to be, though, because nobody can be that angry and upset at, like, everybody unless they're deeply, deeply disturbed. Um, if anything, there should have been a role reversal. Muhammad probably should have gotten to go to the hospital and gotten help. Muhammad is projected to get out of prison in 2037, when he'll be 45 years old. That was Reveal's Stan Alcorn. The difference in how the government treats cases like Cody Seth Crawford's and Mohammed Osman Mohamud's is deeper than just prison sentences. Dozens of FBI agents worked to set up Mohammed in that fake bombing plot. But by putting so many resources into sting operations like that one, is law enforcement missing the threat from right-wing extremists, even when it's right in front of their eyes? If they come to arrest me for noncompliance or whatever, I'm just going to start shooting people. That story next on Reveal. Support for X-Ray FM comes from Bridge City Cleaning Service, a local company providing custom cleaning to hundreds of homes in the greater Portland area. More information at bridgecitycleaning.com or by phone at 503-238-1232. From the Center for Investigative Reporting in PRX, this is Reveal. I'm Al Edson. This hour, we're looking at domestic terrorism with the nonprofit newsroom, The Investigative Fund. They found the federal government is focusing almost all of its resources on terrorists who claim they're fighting in the name of Islam. 
Most of those plots have been foiled. But when it comes to right-wing terrorists, authorities haven't been as successful. Most of those plots have been carried out. The suspects are on foot. It's a white male, uh, and about 25 to 30, a white female that's about the same age. They're in fatigue, and they're heavily armed. The suspects are a married couple. The husband had a habit of proclaiming his views any chance he got online or even on TV. Reveals Catherine Miskowski joins me now. Hi, Al. Hey, Catherine. Okay, so who are we dealing with here? Start with the husband. His name's Jared Miller, and he spent a lot of time recording himself. Thanks for watching my video. That's how we're going to get to know him. Peyton Manning just threw his second interception in the first half of the Super Bowl. Super Bowl. Super Bowl. I'm just smoking a little. Anyway. Sounds like Jared was just the kind of guy who liked to chill out, get high, and talk smack about football. Yeah, but in a lot of these online videos, he's mouthing off about guns, drug laws, the police state. See, Jared was this 30-something high school dropout, and he dealt pot. And in the summer of 2013, he was living with his wife, Amanda, in Lafayette, Indiana. By then, he had a pretty long rap sheet. People are getting arrested every stinking day for marijuana and for pills and other kinds of drugs just because they're self-medicating themselves. He shot this in his low-rent apartment under the spinning ceiling fan. He was on house arrest. And then they give you one of these fashionable little ankle bracelets. Pretty uncomfortable thing right here. You can see it's made an indent on my foot. Jared saw himself as the victim of an illegitimate system. Here's what he saw when he looked outside. Here's my front window here. That is the courthouse. So you have to go down to that big monument to tyranny and submit crawling and groveling on your hands and knees. Oh, give me permission to do this. Give me permission to do that. I don't know. Sounds a little like Nazi Germany to me or maybe communist Russia. Eventually, Jared failed at house arrest. The landlord evicted him and Amanda for not paying their rent, so he had to serve out the rest of his term in jail. He told his wife how he felt about that in another video. Hey, babe, it's your husband. I love you so much. And every night, I'm just going to imagine that I'm holding you. And then I'll wake up pissed off because I know I'm in jail. (laughs) Jared's felony convictions made it hard for him to find a job and illegal for him to own a firearm. He didn't believe in these laws. Online, he found kindred spirits in something called the Sovereign Citizen Movement. Our partners at the nonprofit newsroom, The Investigative Fund, have reported on its followers. Here's journalist David Nywert. People who declare themselves sovereign citizens don't belong to an organization. They belong to a belief system. David says they tend to see the police this way. As an oppressive force of the conspiratorial new world order, which is trying to enslave all of mankind. And they are very revolutionary in their outlook. David found that sovereign citizens pose a big threat to law enforcement. In the last nine years, they've killed nine police officers and injured another 12. That movement appealed to the Millers back in Indiana, where things weren't going very well. After house arrest, the eviction, and Jared's stint in jail... They were looking for where to go, and here was this guy out in Nevada who was running for governor, touting the same ideology that they were 
His name was David Laurie Vanderbeek. A lot of people are going into law enforcement as they did in Nazi Germany because it validates their worst traits as uh, sadists. I'm ready right now to fight to the death for your freedom. I'm ready right now to go to jail for the rest of my life for your freedom. What are you willing to do for your own freedom, Americans? The title of this video is, If Obama Sends Police to Take Your Guns, Execute Them. And it was, in fact, that video that inspired Jared and they, shortly after that, moved out to Nevada to begin working on his campaign. Here's Jared and Amanda hightailing it out of Indiana. Now entering Kentucky. Goodbye, Indiana. Hello, Kentucky. Woohoo! That's one of the few recordings we have with Amanda's voice in it, too. But her social media suggests that she was on board with Jared's views. The Millers had barely made it into Nevada when Jared got in trouble again. I'm looking at a $525 ticket for driving on a suspended license. In this phone call, he complained to the Indiana Bureau of Motor Vehicles. You know, that's a whole month of rent. I can't get a job. As, as, as a person of the DMV, can you tell me how many laws are on the books concerning drivers? Well, I mean, unfortunately, no, I can't tell you like an exact number. Right here is where Jared goes from cranky citizen hassling a government employee to something else. All right, well, I'm going to go to court down here in Nevada to contest this uh, ticket. And if they come to arrest me for noncompliance or whatever, I'm just going to start shooting people. Word of that call reached the Las Vegas Metropolitan Police Department. Detectives paid the Millers a visit and concluded the couple didn't pose a threat. David says it's not uncommon for police to react this way. Because they seem like sort of hopeless losers, uh, they sort of minimize the threat that they pose. Sometimes the Millers posed in costumes along the strip for tips. Amanda worked at Hobby Lobby, like she had back home in Indiana. And the candidate who drew them to Vegas, David Vanderbeek, he introduced them to another politician. They crashed my campaign luncheon. That's Gordon Martinez. He was campaigning for sheriff on the idea that the Vegas police department was corrupt. He'd been a detective in that department. It didn't take him long to feel nervous about the Millers. Jared started out by saying, geez, I want to help. I want to be part of your campaign for sheriff. And then he began explaining his criminal record. Uh, In his opinion, uh, really didn't amount to a whole lot. He declined Jared's offer of help. He just wasn't getting it. And I finally just had to say, uh, uh, you can't be anywhere near me, and I can't be anywhere near you. But the Millers didn't fade quietly away. Gordon kept spotting them at political events around town. There they are. There they are. And, and I, was, I was always kind of expecting some type of acting out. Um, there's just a little voice in the back of my mind that said, keep your eye on this guy because he's, he's a weirdo. Another place Jared and Amanda turned up, the Bundy Ranch, where they would find an even bigger stage for their radical views. Now to a tense standoff between a Nevada rancher and armed supporters on one side and the federal government on the other. This was in April of 2014, when rancher Cliven Bundy escalated a decades-long dispute with the federal government over his refusal to pay fees for grazing his cattle on public lands. His armed supporters gathered at the ranch outside Las Vegas. 
On social media, they've called it a range war. With each passing day, more and more protesters arrive to support the Bundys, one of them carrying an AK-47. The Millers were among them. Jared gave interviews to news crews. For this one with Al Jazeera America, Jared's tricked out for armed resistance against the New World Order. Full camouflage and a black tactical vest, packing a rifle and a handgun. I'm not afraid of death. I'm afraid of being a slave. I'm afraid of living under tyranny. Jared said to a TV news crew while heavily armed that he was willing to die for his beliefs. The Millers believed that they were oppressed by a tyrannical police state. But the law still wasn't watching them. After he threatened violence in a phone call, detectives gave them a pass, and his sovereign citizen beliefs didn't raise eyebrows at the Bundy Ranch. Remember, it was illegal for him, a former felon, to even possess a weapon. That would have been reason enough to arrest him. In another interview at the ranch with NBC affiliate KRNV, Jared said, I feel sorry for any federal agents that want to come in here and try to push us around or anything like that. I I really don't want violence toward them, but if they're going to come bring violence to us, well, if that's the language they want to speak, we'll learn it. Well, that sounds kind of like a menacing statement, I have to tell you. But it wasn't violence that ended their stay at the Bundy Ranch. David Nywert says it was the Bundys. They realized that he was just trouble and they asked him to leave. While the couple was at the ranch, Amanda lost her job at Hobby Lobby. The Millers were broke and couldn't pay their rent. A neighbor they'd befriended took them in. Until... Sunday, June 8, 2014. That's the day Las Vegas emergency dispatchers field a blizzard of phone calls. 11, 22, and 14 seconds. Hello, do you have a police officer? I'm a CC pizza. And now it's the steward. A guy just shot two cops. A guy just what? Shot two policemen. The CC's pizza. Inside or outside? Inside. Inside CC's pizza. Both the victims are inside? Yes. The suspects are on foot. The suspects on foot? Jared and Amanda. It's a white male, uh, and about 25 to 30, a white female that's about the same age. They're in fatigue, and they're heavily armed. Officers converge on the pizza place. One more unit. Inside, there's a horrific scene. We need medical inside CCs now. Medical inside CCs now. Here's what happened. Officers Alan Beck and Igor Soldo were eating lunch at CeCe's Pizza. Amanda and Jared shot them point blank. The ambush lasted less than a minute. Jared and Amanda make off with the officers' weapons and ammunition. They leave a don't tread on me flag with a rattlesnake on it, along with a swastika pin and a note. They aren't done yet. He's still going. He's heading southbound on Nellis, uh, heading towards Walmart. Jared walks into a nearby Walmart with Amanda following him. Just fired inside Walmart. Just fired inside Walmart. And this guy came in yelling that there's a revolution coming to get out of Walmart, that the police are coming, and, and that they will shoot us. And he started shooting in the Walmart, and we ran out the back door. On one call, a guy who fled Walmart says another man with a handgun is still inside, trying to stop the shooters. That man, Joseph Wilcox, is following Jared and aims at him. Amanda's nearby. She fires her gun and kills Joseph. 
with one shot. Inside the store, some customers take cover with employees. Amanda and Jared exchange gunfire with officers. We have two down in the corner. They're both armed, look like they've been shot. They're covering both directions. In the end, Amanda takes her own life. A police officer's bullet kills Jared. Squad is with the victims for correction with the suspects. David Nywert says Jared and Amanda died trying to kill more police officers. They came to believe that the only proper response to police oppression was gunfire, and they acted on it. Following the beliefs of the sovereign citizen movement, the Millers headed to the shopping center that day, hell-bent on resistance. They had left the apartment they were living at earlier that morning, having told their roommate that they were leaving that day with the express purpose of murdering police officers. That's research analyst Zoe Thorkelson. The roommate didn't tell anyone, by the way, because she didn't think they were serious. Zoe studied the attack for a report that the Justice Department commissioned, focusing on the police's tactical response. Security camera footage shows the Millers loitering near the site of their attack for almost two and a half hours before they fired the first shot. So there's evidence that the Millers were essentially waiting around that area for the opportunity to strike out against police. There isn't any evidence that the Millers specifically targeted officers back in Soldo in this incident. The officers died simply because they were in uniform. But what we found was that the two officers that were ambushed, there's nothing in the decisions that they made that could have been changed to prevent this incident. I must have had at least mm, eight, ten phone calls immediately. That's Gordon Martinez, the candidate for Las Vegas sheriff. So what was your reaction when you first found out who the killers were, that it was Jared and Amanda? Oh, no. Why, why couldn't I have just listened to that little voice and maybe warned somebody? As news reports identified the attackers, there was a reason Gordon's phone rang off the hook. In an interview at the Bundy Ranch, Jared had worn a certain T-shirt. My campaign T-shirt, Gordon Martinez for sheriff. Now people linked his campaign to two cop killers, he told his volunteers to stop wearing that shirt. I mean, the Millers left kind of a lot of breadcrumbs before they did these horrible acts. Oh, I know. I had no idea that it would go this this far. Usually what you have is uh, somebody like that. It's just all mouth. Usually. But let's try a thought experiment. What if Jared and Amanda had been Muslim? Here's David again. Clearly, if they had been Muslim and talking about jihad, I think the approach to them would have been substantially different. The couple was able to carry out a murderous plot because no one really believed them. The feds sure didn't. That's despite the fact that the overwhelming majority of attacks against police are by right-wing extremists, not terrorists claiming to act in the name of Islam. The investigative fund database makes that clear. So why do you think the danger that someone like the Millers posed is treated so differently? Hmm. The why. (laughs) It's complex. Hateful rhetoric on the far right has become so commonplace, many people ignore it. David says there's a reason ISIS-related threats grab more attention. A lot of it is a result of institutionalized systemic racism. Because they were white kids from Indiana who were just talking about shooting police, nobody took it very seriously.
The fatal ambush of officers Alan Beck and Igor Soldo hit the Vegas Police Department hard. Officer Tyler Todd is treasurer of the local police union. He used to patrol the area where the shooting took place with Officer Soldo. Do you have a feeling like that could have been you? Oh, absolutely. The, the, the CC's pizza that they were eating at, him and I had gone there several times. Exact same scenario. Um, you know, we wind the clock back a month or two. Um, definitely could have been him and I there. Tyler's late colleague left behind his wife and an infant son. He was a brilliant guy at, at policing. He was going to go real far. He busted his butt and knew what he was doing and actually was teaching other guys new things because he was always, always looking, always learning. And he's, he's missed. That's why it aches for him to consider what everyone missed about the Millers. It's frustrating and, and, and painful to know how this all transpired. And, but if you sit there and think about it, it's just not going to help anybody. So why isn't more being done to stop right-wing terrorists like the Millers? Daryl Johnson used to run an office that tracked those threats in the Department of Homeland Security. In 2009, he wrote a report that sounded the alarm about the resurgence of right-wing extremists. Soon after, he was pushed out of the agency. Daryl joins me to talk about what's changed and what hasn't. Hey, Daryl, thanks for being here. You're welcome. Does that office that you worked in, domestic terrorism, does that exist today? It does not. There was about, I want to say, 20 to 25 analysts looking at Muslim extremists uh, conducting violent attacks here in the United States, and there was just my team of five. Uh, So that whole branch was dissolved. In fact, they did a massive reorganization of the whole office. So they have yet to uh, look at this subject or to reconstitute the unit that I once led. And that's been, what, eight years now? And so what have you been seeing now, now that you've been out of the government for a while and we're kind of in a new era? Yeah, so we're in a very interesting time. I've been looking at this topic since the early 80s. And typically during Republican administrations, we see kind of the far right dialing back on its activities and the group counts decreasing. Uh, Just the opposite is happening this time around, and this is the first time uh, hate crimes are up uh, against Muslim communities in 2016. We've had a number of uh, far-right attacks so far this year. We had, of course, the Portland stabbings. Uh, We had a black uh, soldier that was stabbed and killed at the University of Maryland College Park. We also had a white supremacist from Baltimore that traveled up to New York City and stabbed the first black person he saw, hoping to uh, incite a race war, and that was another fatal stabbing. So these are just a few of the things that have happened so far in 2017. It's been a very active year. Do you see any indication from the current administration that they're going to go after domestic terrorism in any kind of serious way? Absolutely no. If they've done anything, they've actually dialed back uh, again in their rhetoric. You know, I read in the news that President Trump wanted to rebrand the countering violent extremism efforts by labeling it countering Muslim extremism. All that does is by changing that brand is you've basically acknowledged that you're going to be looking at Muslim extremists at the expense of other types of threats. I think... uh, those who are not Muslim that are extremists kind of applaud that and get emboldened and uh, may 
feel like they can go out and have a permissive environment where they can conduct attacks. Is this the continuation of the Obama-era policy, or is this something new? This is something new. At least Obama recognized the threat, even though I think uh, many of his cabinet members looked at Muslim terrorism as the only threat. Here, you just have an outright rejection and and failure to even acknowledge that there is a threat. Well, Daryl, thank you so much for coming in today. We really appreciate you. Thank you. That's Daryl Johnson. He tracked domestic terror threats as a senior analyst at the Department of Homeland Security until 2010. By the way, the Countering Violent Extremism program that Daryl mentioned has not been renamed yet. But in President Trump's budget proposal, he did slash its funding. We reached out to Homeland Security, the FBI, and the Justice Department for comment on our story. None of them would agree to an interview with us. But Homeland Security did send us a statement. In it, they reject the criticism that they are overly focused on any particular group or element in the fight against terrorists. They say they concentrate on all threats to the homeland and work closely with state, local, and federal law enforcement. Today's show was produced by Catherine Miskowski and lead producer Stan Alcorn. Cheryl Duvall was our editor. Thanks to our partners at the Investigative Fund, including editor Esther Kaplan, reporter David Nywert, and researcher Darren Ankrum. You can see the entire domestic terrorism database at revealnews.org. Thanks to our data team for their work on that, including editor Jennifer LaFleur and reporter Scott Pham. Fact-checking from Harriet Rowan and Emmanuel Martinez. Our sound design team is the Wonder Twins. My man, Jay Breezy, Mr. Jim Briggs, and Claire C. Note Mullen, with help from Catherine Raimondo. Our head of studio is Krista Scharfenberg. Amy Powell is our editor-in-chief. Suzanne Reber is our executive editor. And our executive producer is Kevin Sullivan. Our theme music is by Camarado, Lightning. Support for reveals provided by the Reva and David Logan Foundation, the Ford Foundation, the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Heising Simons Foundation, and the Ethics and Excellence in Journalism Foundation. Reveal is a co-production of the Center for Investigative Reporting and PRX. I'm Al Edson, and remember, there is always more to the story. Thank you.